Dearest Father, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Thank you for ensuring the faithful transmission of your word throughout the ages down to us. Thank you for your presence with us by your Holy Spirit. Please continue to illumine our understanding in these next moments so that your great name is honored and glorified in this place and in our hearts. Amen. It's nice to be with you. If you haven't seen me for a while, it's because I'm one of those that left for Trinity. So I'm happy to be with you this morning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. And then he continues to bring order out of the chaos and fill the emptiness. And we see then a king at work developing, creating a dwelling place for himself. And lastly, he creates mankind, male and female, in his own image after his likeness and puts them in the garden. And he blesses them and then he tasks them with being his vice gerents, his representatives on the earth, right? to rule and reign as his representatives and to develop the earth and to develop culture and all of that. But they disobeyed his word. They didn't trust his love for them. They didn't trust his goodness. They thought he was holding out on them. And they turned from him and they became children of the evil one. And the creation was also cursed. Amazingly, God immediately reveals his plan to restore the creation, to send a rescuer to do that so that man could once more take his righteous place, his his place as, as God's righteous representative in the earth and rule and reign for him and so that the earth would then be filled with his glory. Then God chose a man named Abram, a pagan from Mesopotamia, so that through that man, this restorer, rescuer, that he promised Adam and Eve would come. Through that family, blessing would be restored to mankind and go out to the whole earth. Then in the fullness of time, when the time was right, Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the son of Adam, came. John leaves the details of the physical birth out. He leaves that to the other gospel writers. You know, he's very late, long, many years after them. And then he goes back and tells us what happens in eternity past to bring about the rescue. He says that it's God himself coming in human flesh, to restore man's right to be his children. So, we know that chapter 4 is part of chapters 2 and 3 because if you jump to the end 
we find Jesus in Cana again, right? And so John is telling us this belongs together with two and three. And so I've given you a little structure there just to, just to review so that, you'll, so that you'll know, you'll be able to see in your head and make the connection of what John is doing for us. There in 2 through 11, Jesus is in Cana, sign one, the Messiah, the King, is here, right? And then he goes to Jerusalem. Then he is in Judea. He leaves the city, right? Goes out to goes out to Judea, to the wilderness, to the suburbs, if you will, or whatever. Then he heads into Samaria, and then finally in Cana, again. So this first sign. In two, the wine, the water turned to wine. And the last sign of the restoration of, it, it says near, near death, right? Of the sun to life, freely flowing wine, death swallowed up. John is showing us the king has come. God has come, right? It's not like what the Pharisees expected, but he's here, and John is telling us that. I think you looked at, maybe a couple of of weeks ago, Isaiah 25, 6 to 9. Let me just refresh your memory here. On this mountain, this is Isaiah 25, 6 to 9. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined, And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. And And it will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. The prologue way back in one introduces us to Jesus' purpose for coming. I'll just refresh your memory there. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. For he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, to his own people. And they did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Terry reminded you last week of how chapter 2 ended. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and he needed and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And then chapter 3 starts off, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, and you talked about him last week in detail 
And then chapter 3 ends this way. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So this week, we meet a whoever. Last week, we met one of his own. And this week, we meet a whoever. And John is comparing and contrasting them for us. Right? So the first, in your little outline there, you see the first 26 verses kind of lumped together. The point, I who speak to you am he. Right? So we transition out of, um, out of Judea, and it says that Jesus had to pass through Samaria, had to pass through. He gives important details there. And what, what is happening is that Jesus is fulfilling a prophecy from Ezekiel 37. More than likely, this is what's happening. If you want to turn there, that's great if you have your Bible handy. I'm going to go ahead and read it just so that, you can, so that you can see why he had to go to Samaria. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, take a stick and write on it. For Judah and the people of Israel associated with him, then take another stick and write on it. For Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel associated with him. And join them one to another into one stick, that they may become one in your hand. And when your people say to you, will you not tell us what you mean by these? Say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am about to take the stick of Joseph that is in the hand of Ephraim and the tribes of Israel associated with him, and I will join it with the stick of Judah and make them one stick, that they may be one in my hand. When the sticks on which you ride are in your hand before their eyes, then say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I'll take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone and will gather them from all around and bring them to their own land, and I will make them one nation on the mountains of Israel. And one king shall be king over them all, and they shall no longer be two nations, no longer divided into two kingdoms. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all their backslidings in which they have sinned and will cleanse them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. My servant David shall be king over them and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave my servant Jacob where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever and David my servant shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. I shall be an, it shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God. They shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. Jews and Samaritans had been estranged for hundreds of years, and Jesus is coming to reunite them, the people of Israel, the people of Judah, right? And so he's wearied from his journey. John shows us 
the humanity of the Lord. He's thirsty. Have you ever been really, really thirsty? I was hiking once in the Grand Canyon in July, and uh, we had stopped at this little oasis point, and we were going to go out to this point that looked over the river. It was just, it was like not even a mile. I think it was like three, three quarters of a mile out and three quarters back, and filled up and everything. And on the way back, I, I thought I was going to pass out. I, I didn't think I was going to make it. Jesus was thirsty. And I can see him sitting down there. He's weary from walking. And this woman comes up. And he's like, give me a drink. You know, he's parched. And she, of course, is shocked because men did not speak to women publicly, especially not Jewish men, right? And then she wasn't, I'm sure, expecting him to talk to her at all because she could see, number one, that he's a man, and number two, that he's a Jew, right? So she's like, Hmm, <laughs> how is it that you're asking me? You know, and then he starts this wonderful conversation with her. Like he did with Nicodemus, he just throws out this metaphor, right? And she, like Nicodemus, is only thinking on the physical level. She doesn't, you know, she doesn't get it at all. So it's interesting. First she's thinking, okay, this guy's a Jew, and now she's thinking, okay, he's a little off somehow because how is he going to get water without something to draw with, right? And then, you know, she's, she's thinking, okay, so who do you think you are? Are you, are you better, greater than our, you know, than our father Jacob, right, right that you have this water to, to give me? And then he just continues, Right? He indulges her. He's thinking, okay, this woman is this woman is interested in chatting here, right? So then he continues his metaphor, whoever drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst again because it will be a continuous well of water springing up to eternal life. The water, again, water, 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 is connecting us also back to Nicodemus. You must be born of water and the spirit, right? And so we know that water here is spirit. He's trying to teach her about the nature of the spirit, right? It's like water forever flowing. And she says, sure, I'll indulge you. Give me this, you know, give me this water, right? And so then... He digs deeper. He's thinking, I know you're thirsty, and I know you've been looking for something to quench your thirst, but you haven't found it yet. So he says to her, go, call your husband and come back. He knows her. He knows her heart, and he knows this is going to get her, right? Now, I don't think that he was trying to condemn her at this point. I don't think Jesus came to condemn, right? He says he came to bring life, right? And so he's just telling this woman, I know you. I know your heart. I know that you're looking for something that hasn't brought you satisfaction. It's, and it's me, right? And so she, 
I think we get from her reaction later. I don't think she's feeling guilty. I'm not sure that she's deflecting the conversation. She's like, hmm, okay, this is a Jew, and he's a prophet because he he knows me. I haven't told him any of this. And so she's thinking, okay, I've got a Jewish man who's willing to talk to me. I'm going to see if I can get an answer to this age-old question. Do we have it right, or do they have it right? right? So then she begins to ask him, who are the true worshipers? Right? That's her question, basically. Who's got it right? Who are the true worshipers? Because, okay, you're making me feel my sin. You're making me see it a little bit. So I need to, I need to know what to do about it. I need to know who's got the answers, right? And so then he goes on, and did you notice that worship, 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 it's like 10 times, right? Central part of that, of that section there. Worship here means wholehearted allegiance. It doesn't mean singing. It doesn't mean a gathering where you hear the word preached. It means those things, and it can include those things. But worship is total allegiance. That can be done anywhere at any time, Jesus is telling her. It's not, it's not Mount Gerizim. Y'all don't have that right. Correct, you know. And it's not really in Jerusalem. It's not in Jerusalem, the temple. He had already mentioned in you know, a couple chapters before, this temple's going to be destroyed. True worship does not happen in a place. It happens anywhere at any time because true worship comes when the Spirit indwells His people. Right. And they are living lives of total allegiance to him. Right. And so he's, he's telling her, true worship comes, or not true knowledge about how to worship correctly, comes from the Jews. It was the Jews. It was Abraham and his descendants who were tr- entrusted with the true story about how to worship me. I don't know if y'all talked about it in your groups or not, but the Samaritans only used the Pentateuch. They did not have all the prophets, so they didn't even really have the whole story. They only had a certain part of the story. So Jesus said, you guys are worshiping what you don't know. We worship what we know because God entrusted the Jews with the story. Right? And we're to take from that, it, Muhammad wasn't entrusted with the story. Hinduism doesn't contain the true story of the world. Buddha didn't have it right. The Baha'i faith, that, that's not the true story. There's one true story of the world, and it was entrusted to the Jews. That's, that's the truth. That's how we know how to worship. Right? And then he actually boldly tells this unnamed, immoral Samaritan woman that he is the Messiah. And he uses 
that phrase, I am, which John repeats again and again throughout his gospel. He is telling her, I am Yahweh of the Jews. I am he, right? So she goes from Jew to, okay, this guy's a little off, to sir, right? To, hmm, a prophet, to, wow, is this the Christ? So the disciples come back with their food and interrupt the conversation, right? She is astounded, leaves her water jar, which tells us she's not not concerned about being thirsty anymore. Something more important has just happened to her. And she leaves, and what does she do? She doesn't go hide herself because she's ashamed and been exposed. She goes to the town, right, the people that she normally avoids because she's out there in broad daylight instead of early morning or late afternoon when the other women would go to draw water. She's avoiding the townspeople. She goes to the townspeople. Y'all, y'all, come see a man who told me everything. And it's not bothering her that he, told, that he exposed her immorality because now it's like, He exposed it, and now I can do something about it. It's going to be gone. I just know it. Come come listen to him, right? The Samaritans believed that when Moses wrote of that prophet in Deuteronomy 18, there would be a prophet come after me. They believed that he would tell them all things, and Moses told the people, listen to him. And so she was listening And she wants those people to come and listen with her, right? Is this the one? Could he be the one, right? So she gets her own little sign, right? And so here what we have, we have all these comparisons and contrasts with Nicodemus, right? He's an educated, influential, powerful, righteous Jew who's been entrusted with the oracles of God, and she is a hated Samaritan woman who is ignorant, who is immoral. We actually, we actually don't know if she had been like a serial widow, or we don't, we don't really know. We just know for some reason she had five husbands, so we all assume that she was immoral. I, I don't know, could, could very well be, right? But Obviously, John is contrasting her with Nicodemus. He's so good. Is it possible that such good people could be left out? She's so bad. She's lacking so much. Is it possible that whoever can get in? Really? Right? That's what John is showing us. But he's also, he's also showing us they have a lot of things in common. They both thought they were all right spiritually. Nicodemus thought he was keeping the law and he was pleasing God with his righteous life. And the Pharisees, the Pharisees believed that the, um, the resurrection of the dead was a reward for living a righteous life. Got that out of the uh, ESV study Bible. That has some great helps in there to help you understand where they're, where they're coming from. And then she and the Samaritans, of 
After all, Jacob is their father, right? And they have the books of Moses, and they, they thought they had it right. She thought she was, you know, she thought she was fine too. Surely Jake, Jesus wasn't greater than Jacob, this Jew that shows up at my well, you know. So they're not unlike many people today who think that they're all right spiritually because they adhere to certain beliefs and traditions, right? They're both very literal in their reaction to Jesus' use of metaphor, right? Paul describes the reaction of the natural man in 1 Corinthians 2 like this. And that the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Neither Nicodemus nor the woman had spiritual eyes to see, spiritual ears to hear. Third way, they're similar. They both are empty spiritually and sensed a need for God, even though their outlook on life and their intellectual convictions denied it. Augustine's famous quote is apropos for us here. Our heart is restless until it rests in you. Right? Finally, they're both lost spiritually. Jesus came to rescue both Jew and Gentile, who as Adam's children had forsaken their father God and become children of the evil one. John is vividly illustrating for us the desire of the father's heart to bring his children back into his family. Moreover, John is challenging his readers, us, to ask themselves how they will respond. And just some other, some other interesting things. Nicodemus comes in the dark, the darkness, and we don't know what is going on in his heart at the end of the chapter. She comes in the day, and Jesus comes to her in the day, in the light, and she, we leave her enlightened, right? So then... Um, Jesus is having this conversation with his disciples while the woman is having the conversation with the townspeople, right? And again, the disciples, even though they're also gradually understanding, we learn that after the wedding, uh, the, the miracle in, in Cana, we know, we, we, we saw that they believed, and then when it's, uh, uh, we, when the, uh, when it, he told the uh, Pharisees that he would destroy the te- or if the, you destroyed the temple and you know restore it in three days, they remembered afterwards. It says and they believed. Right? So we know they're gradually believing, but they don't get this. <laughs> they don't get this here, right? I've got food that y'all don't know about. So they're also still seeing with a lot of natural eyes, right? And he is so excited. He is so excited about this woman and her her reaction. She ran off and he's talking to them and he's telling the disciples, look up and here come the townspeople. Look up and see the fields are white for harvest, right? So he throws in another agricultural metaphor, right? Another metaphor, metaphor for there. there. And then um, one of the commentators is also saying um, this is probably hearkening back to 
uh, Amos 9, 13, where it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. So it's happening. It's happening. It's now. It's fast. Sower, reapers overtaking sower. Guys, look up. Here they come. Get ready. Right? And then... And then the people come, right? And they ask him to stay. And then they tell the woman, we, we don't believe anymore just because you told us. But we've heard with our own ears. And we know that this is the Savior of the world, right? They believed without a sign. And they are in the kingdom, right? Then we finish off with Jesus leaving after a couple of days in Samaria, lagging behind, and he goes back into Cana, and then this man comes. And we don't know, I don't know if y'all talked about this or not in your group, we don't know really the identity of this man. We We don't know the ethnicity of this man. He's another whoever. We don't know if he's Jew or Gentile. We don't know if he may be military or civilian. We don't really know. But what we do know is that Jesus had been in Capernaum before, and so perhaps this man had heard about him or heard him with his own ears. Who knows, right? But something has struck a chord with him so that he, he gets to Cana once Jesus comes back, and he begs him, Come, my son is at death's door. Please come and heal him, right? And Jesus, is, Jesus says to him, Ah, you're just only looking for a sign, right? That's the way a lot of the people were. That's the way chapter 3 ends, or chapter 2 ends, right? But he, the man actually has some seed of faith growing because he says, if you don't come, he's going to die. And then Jesus just frankly says to him, your son will live. And he believed him. He believed him. And he set back off for home, right? And then the sign is confirmed to him after he believed, right? So John is commending for us these people who saw signs and believed and received the gift of eternal life, right? So John leaves us with a couple of very vivid illustrations about what Jesus is offering. The first is that living water. Living water. Abundant life in the Spirit. I'm not going to take the time to read it. Did I mark on your, did I leave on your sheet Ezekiel 47, 12? It's here. Ezekiel 47, 12. It's an incredible picture of the water flowing from the temple and making everything fresh and causing leaves to grow and all of this. And it's repeated in Revelation 22, right? That is the life-giving spirit that energizes, right? And causes a human uh, humanity to flourish. And the other really awesome picture John is giving us is that of marriage. Did anybody think about a man talking to a woman at a well? Did that occur to anybody? What's that? 
Rebecca. Yeah. Moses, uh, Moses, Abraham sends his servant to his home to go find a wife for Isaac, right? And he meets her at the well, right? And this is the woman that, that uh, Isaac ends up marrying. And then Jacob goes back also later and meets uh, Rachel at the well, right? And they are married. And Moses meets his wife, Zipporah, after he's fled having murdered the Egyptian, right? He meets his wife, Zipporah, at the well. There's a picture that God keeps repeating for us in his word of men meeting women at a well, and, they're, and they, it's a betrothal scene. We've already seen Jesus acting as the bridegroom at the wedding in Cana. He provided the wine. John the Baptist tells us in, it's either two or three, sorry, I don't remember off the top of my head, that Jesus is the bridegroom and he's the best man. You remember that? Was that last week? All right? And so now the woman at the well, John is telling us, God is telling us, Jesus is the bridegroom pictured throughout the Old Testament who's coming for his bride, right? Whoever, whoever, right? And just briefly, if I don't know if you have, you probably didn't have time to draw this, but if you want, I'll just leave it up. Nicodemus and the Jews had a certain interpretation of the scriptures about what it was going to, what the consummation of time was going to be like. They were living you know, the time before Messiah, it was a time of sin and death and evil and the evil one, Satan, ruling and reigning. But then Messiah was going to come and bring God's spirit and he was, you know, he would be filling everyone and then the knowledge of God would abound everywhere and there would be love and joy and justice reigning on the earth it was as it was supposed to be and all the evil would be vanquished, Right? So that's what they were expecting. And Jesus totally threw them for a loop. And Jesus is telling this woman, and John is telling us, wait, it's a little different. We need to squish these, we need to squish, squish these circles together here, right? And we saw it also in, in Luke when Jesus finished his first sermon there at Nazareth before the judgment in that passage from Isaiah that he read. Before the judgment, before all of this is completely vanquished forever, there's a time of harvest. The new age has already crept in to the old. It's starting. The Spirit is already being poured out right now. Drink. That's what he's telling her. Drink. It's already happening, right? And then there will be a final consummation when all of this will finally and ultimately be dealt with forever, right? But the time now, right now, of the Spirit is here, right? That's the time for us also. We are here. All of our neighbors are here. All of our relatives are here. All of the Muslims over in the Middle East and Indonesia and all the Indians, all the Hindus over, they're all living right here and it's harvest time. 
are we going to lift up our eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest? That's what he's expecting from us right now. It's time to pray. Let me close this off. Dearest Jesus, you are the Savior of the whole world. Whoever receives you as the only Savior is welcomed into your kingdom and in turn receives your gift of eternal life. No one's so good, so righteous as to not need your mercy. And no one is so bad that they're beyond your reach. You alone can quench our thirst for what truly satisfies. Would you make us bold witnesses who proclaim your magnificent story to the thirsty world? Would you help us to desire seeing others coming into your kingdom so that when you return, the whole earth may be filled with the glory of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.